Here's the thing though. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Here's the Thing Though podcast. My name is Saliha and I'm your host for today. And I'm here with my producer slash editor, Mitch Price. Bonsoir. Before we begin, we'd like to acknowledge the Bidjigal people of the Eora Nation, who are the traditional owners of the land that we are recording on today. We'd like to pay our respects to all First Nations people, past, present and future, and acknowledge that we're recording on stolen land and that sovereignty was never ceded. Hey, Mitch. How are you? How's it going? I'm fine. I'm good. Things are going good. Haven't been up to too much. Same old. You know, you know how it is. Mm-hmm. Have you been? Yeah, basically the same. It's been like busy, but also just the usual. Just work. Not too much to report. Yeah, fair enough. Let's get straight into follow-up today. Okay. I like it. Very quick, efficient. Yes. I feel like I have a lot that I want to talk about today, so we just we just got to get into it. All right, let's do it. So the first thing I wanted to discuss in follow-up today was a incident that occurred in Perth with a police dog attack. So a 13-year-old boy named Jaden Abraham was mauled by a police dog on Sunday night, 13 November. Unsurprisingly, he is Indigenous. Jaden's family are kind of going through the media channels at the moment and like trying to get some accountability of why their son was mauled by a police dog, which is already a pretty horrific story but significantly worse given that Cassius Turvey was a 15-year-old Indigenous boy who was killed at the hands of a white man in Perth just a few weeks ago. With this story, Jaden's family are demanding to see police vision, so police body cam footage of what happened because the details are unclear from the police statement. They say that they were called after multiple calls to police about some kind of altercation involving many people at different locations, which already sounds really bizarre, like how many different locations could these people be at? They arrived at the scene where there was one adult and three juveniles. One of the juveniles was Jaden Abraham. Police told whoever they could see to like, stop, you know, don't run or we're going to deploy the police dog on you. They then did deploy the police dog and it attacked Jaden. Now, police did share some body cam footage with media, including the ABC, which is rare, I should point out. That's not mm. normal. It's a very small snippet, according to the ABC. And what you see in that recording is that it's like kind of dark. Police deploy the dog and then the officer apparently falls over. So you just like don't see anything. And then when he gets up, the dog's already mauling Jaden and then it cuts off. So you don't know what happens afterwards. It's like they don't give you the full picture and also you kind of learn nothing from the recording. So I can see why they decided this would be one of the instances where which they would share it. Yeah, I was going to say it is surprising that they shared the body cam footage. But, but it's also, because it doesn't do anything. Right. And it is ironic that the point of body cameras is for like full transparency. And accountability. Very rarely are they kind of shared. Yeah. Avoid. And when they are, it's, you know, when it's the least transparent, mo- most opaque, right? Yeah. Um, there's actually a really good film about that, All Lights Everywhere, yes. which we watched, which is all about like the about that philo- it's about the philosophy of just seeing broadly, but also focuses in on body cam footage and like the philosophy, the epistemological questions of the body camera. 
Very interesting. Yeah, we watched that like maybe a year ago now. Yeah, very, it was very. really good. But anyway, so there were like kind of confusing claims about like Jaden potentially being handcuffed at the time or not. It's all pretty murky. And there is like an ongoing investigation by police into the occurrence that was also done by police. So, you know, expect what you will in terms of justice from this scenario. But something that I find really interesting about all this and why it's part of our follow up today is that police commissioner Kylie Whiteley, Whitley, don't care, defended the use of the police dog, but I find what she said to be like quite telling. So I'm going to read her quotes out. This is per the ABC. A police dog's deployed for very serious offences, and particularly in this instance, we'd had 10 calls and they were serious incidents. In the middle of the night, in the dark, it's unknown who you're chasing, and so in those circumstances, a police dog may be deployed. They were responding to vehicles being broken into, homes being broken into, and members of the public being confronted. So at that point in time, they had no other information other than they were looking for offenders. And I find it really interesting that she actually just completely reinforces the things that we say. Yeah, exactly. Like she right. literally They're telling on themselves. Yeah, she literally defends the deployment of a police dog onto a child because she says there was property damage and cops were looking for an offender. Mm. By the way, Jaden has not been charged with anything. A 21-year-old man that was on the scene with him and the two other children has been charged, but Jaden hasn't been charged with anything. If you look at the ABC article, I'll link it in the sources, he is severely injured. Like, his entire face is like a massive curved scar over his face where the dog, like, grabbed him. It's really awful. And I just find it so fucked that, like, weeks after Cassius Turvey died after being accused of being involved in some kind of property damage, like another boy has been wrongly mauled by a police dog on the same claims. It's always used, whether it's random white men, whether it's police, like people are always justifying the brutalizing of Indigenous anyone, but specifically young boys Mm. on the grounds of like, oh, well, there was cause of property damage. Something was being robbed or stolen and we Mm. just needed to find the offender. Like as if that It's always property damage. It's always something being stolen. Yeah, because property is more important than the lives of an Indigenous boy. So anyway, I just wanted to bring that up in our follow-up because we talked pretty extensively about it. We've talked about this like in so many different episodes on so many different occasions because it keeps fucking happening. But because we talked about Cassius Turvey last episode and this is like, in the same city, in the same state, to another boy of a similar age and background. It's just so obvious and it shocks me that, like, the police commissioner can go out and say this shit with no accountability. Like, I have not seen articles calling her out for being like, well, you know, we deploy dogs for serious offences like robbery yeah. and we, we were looking for an offender. Like, how can you say that and nobody calls you to account? I don't know if it's exactly this, but there's almost a circular logic where the situation is serious because a dog was deployed. The dog wasn't deployed. Because yeah. the situation was serious, you know, yeah. it's almost like this post facto justification in the light of this a horrible tragedy. So yeah. yeah. And the idea that they were looking for offenders and therefore they deployed a dog is bizarre because like the dog doesn't know who the offender is. It's not mm. like it sniffed the scene and then got a scent. Like you just deployed a dog on people you thought were maybe guilty and you weren't concerned about the fact that they might not be. Right. Like what the fuck? But that unpredictability to- becomes kind of useful. Yeah. In this case. Yeah. It's just, yeah. I mean, I know that we all see through it, but it's Mm. worth talking about again and again and again until we see some accountability. Moving on from that follow-up, we've got some... Lighter news. More lighter news. Yes. So, we watched a few things that we wanted to talk about in follow-up. The first one being Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. Mm. As you all know, we're both very skeptical of Marvel and its propaganda machine, but I actually really enjoyed the second Black Panther movie. I thought it was pretty good. I liked it. I feel like responses have been mixed and I am 
not really up to date with a lot of the Marvel stuff. And I feel like I managed to get by in this one in terms of just knowing what's up. And there were points of it that felt like an actual movie. Like, felt like a, a director. Like a movie, like a real like a, go <laughs> to the cinema. Like a movie. That's so- <laughs> exactly though yes it did it's like every once in a while there's a marvel movie where you can tell that at least for portions of it they let like a filmmaker touch the camera there were elements of that in the doctor the most recent doctor strange one i didn't like that one very much i actually haven't seen it but there were moments where you're like oh there's actually like they let sam raimi touch the camera and here it works similarly like yeah actually felt like i was invested in the drama as a movie, not as, like, how it relates to this to larger Marvel. Marvel project. Yeah, and, I mean, there were still bits of it that oh, very yeah. much were like, oh, you've literally only put that in there because you want to make a Disney Plus spinoff. Like, we yes. can see right through you. And that's what a lot of the critics, like... We're calling out. We're calling out. Including just because me. This is, like, the one franchise or character that is almost, like, leans towards or appeals to some of the more, like, prestige audiences. Like, I mean, the original Black Panther was nominated for Best Picture... Critics really liked it. And so I think people are even more critical when it's so obviously like shoehorning in. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, you need to watch this because there's a new, I think it's like Ironheart yeah. series coming out. Um, but I liked it. Yeah. That being said, it was good. I thought the racial diversity was great. I thought that it's Afrofuturism was really beautiful and like the costuming was amazing music was great there's one scene that's really eerie and creepy and like i just felt it deep in my bones which i feel like i don't feel in marvel movies so i really liked it and also the mayan king was really hot which i also really did you know actually mitch that they edited his bulge out of the movie you know i i heard about <laughs> that like an hour ago yeah i just saw that i saw the comparison photos yeah i saw like, it release the penis cut yes <laughs> but yeah it was there was just so many things I actually really liked about it. Uh, so, do recommend. And But one other thing I just wanted to mention with that is it seems Marvel has a pattern, especially with some of their villains lately, where they want to make them complex. So, they'll mm. have, like, something that reflects, like, a real radical statement, but mm-hmm. then just kind of undermine that and kind of sh- strawman it. Like, we saw that in the original Black Panther movie. Yeah, I, I remember had it beef. too well. But it's like, was it Killmonger? Yeah, well, who- I that annoyed me because he, he was the villain for wanting to arm... Um, African people so they can fight their colonizers. And I personally see nothing wrong with yeah. that. So. Whereas uh, <laughs> Black Panther just wanted to keep it for themselves. But the way the film ends and like reconciles like this attention of keeping and giving is through this very institutionalized means at the end of, which is essentially like having a connection with America. Yeah, they just opened an embassy in the US. Yeah. And I'm like, mm, that's not work. I don't give a fuck about this. Moving on to just another thing we wanted to mention is we watched The Menu. Oh, yeah. Which I actually think is maybe one of my top three movies I've seen this year. I think that my top three movies for the year are probably Nope, Bodies, 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 and The Menu. Mm, I really I, liked I, it. I wouldn't go that highly myself, but I did really enjoy it. I really enjoyed it. There was like maybe one scene that I didn't love, but I won't talk about it right now because I feel like it'd be very much a spoiler if I did. Mm. But I liked it. For me, it was like, because it was directed by the person who's directed most of the episodes for Succession. And one of the co-writers was a writer for Succession of The Menu. And it very much has that, like, sardonic quality of Succession. So, it's like Succession plus Saw, you know, the horror movie, plus Ratatouille because of the <laughs> evocative power of food. Yes. Um, and it, all that equals a very amusing film. So yeah. That's good. I really enjoyed it. Okay. Last thing for follow-up that we want to talk about. Oh, Yes is <laughs> Love is Blind. We have finally finished season three. As you guys all know, we really liked season two. Mm. And we talked about that a lot. There were some moments we really enjoyed from season two. 
Season three was definitely, I feel, more unhinged and weird. More chaotic, yeah. More chaotic in a way. Like, individuals were probably meaner people in season two, but I feel like we had very clear heroes and villains in season two. Whereas in season three, it's, like, such a mess. Also, just kind of everybody's problematic as well. Like, there's no one to really root for in a lot of ways. The two things we wanted to, like, kind of talk about quickly from Love is Blind were Zeneb and Cole... Yes, that And Bartice and Nancy. Mm-hmm. With Zeneb and Cole, I mean, if you haven't watched Love is Blind, sorry, you're just going to have to sit through we're this. Not gonna, I can't we're not going to recap. recap. Yeah, just, it's going to take too long. You're in or you're out. Okay. Yeah, you can just skip through. <laughs> you'll, um, you'll maybe pick something up. Okay. We'll, we'll be brief. Yes. Well, I just want to say with Zeneb and Cole, it's been like really messy in the aftermath and the discourse that has come out of their relationship because to not give a recap, but just to tell you what it was. Zeneb and Cole met in the pods, whatever, got together. Things got really messy because Cole is a white 25 or 60-year-old, 26-year-old, I think. Mm. And Zeneb is half Pakistani, half white American. And she's 31. So there were already kind of a few differences to work through. And then Cole was just a man-child who was not very good at reassuring Zeneb, who was very insecure about her attractiveness. And it was messy, messy, messy. Cole was definitely more problematic than Zeneb was, but Zeneb also like was very passive aggressive and never really explained any of her feelings a lot of the time. And it was just painful to watch. So fucking painful to watch. But in the reunion panel of Love is Blind. Which I I love the reunion panels, uh, by the way. I think they're the best more part shows. Of the show. I feel like not too many reality shows have that kind of space. I don't know any other show that Because I think just for another tangent. I think the reunion specials are so interesting because you watch the show and then they come back also having watched the show and it's almost a space where they can like negotiate the way they've been edited. Because yes. we always talk about oh this person got the bad edit, this person got the good edit. And it, it within the show is a space for the re- the people to reflect on the way things were portrayed uh, and maybe misportrayed. So I think it's I feel like more shows like this should have that space to discuss like the representation of things. I yes. Think it's kind of interesting. I would watch a lot more reality TV if more shows had that because it gives you a peek behind the curtain. Unless people like advocate their position as well because we don't see everything on reality mm. TV and we should be more critical of that. But in the reunion episode, which I think is filmed a year after the actual season is filmed. so Yeah, even like a year and a half even. I yeah, think. it's a while after. So people have had time to reflect and grow from their behavior on the show, which obviously happens when emotions are running high. But in that reunion special, Zeneb tore into Cole, as she did also on the altar when she said no to him after she said that he made her feel very insecure about herself and that he destroyed her self-esteem. It was a whole thing. People clapped. It was a thing. But then in the reunion, she continues to tear into him and he maintains that he has no fucking clue where any of this is coming from. Now, us having watched the show know that he definitely made her insecure. Like, we know that he said things to her that were nasty. We know that he asked her if she was bipolar when she, you know, her mood randomly changed, quote-unquote randomly. No, he said something nasty. She got upset, and then he accused her of not having any rationality to her emotions. There's also times where he compares her to other women in the show who are skinnier, shorter, cuter, and whiter. So it's, you know, it's a whole thing. But... The reason I'm talking about them is because Zeneb was really kind of treated as the angry woman of color for the way that she reacted to a lot of Cole's comments. And I will say that a lot of the time she wasn't behaving appropriately, but she also wasn't behaving crazily. Like she wasn't 
you know, I feel like she was very sympathetic even at times when she was behaving in a way that, like, was immature or mm. passive-aggressive. I sympathise with her because, you like, I don't expect these people to be perfect, whereas Cole was honestly just a bit of a fuckwit a lot of the time, like, just genuinely a bit of an asshole. I feel like Zainab never actively tried to hurt him from what we saw in the episodes, right? But then in the reunion, it looks like she really is trying to, like, fuck with Cole. You know, she, like, makes these really sweeping claims about how, like, the only reason the audience sympathizes with Cole is because they didn't see the full picture. Like, he got a good edit. She keeps referring to something called the Cuties incident. And she's (laughs) like, you are so lucky that Netflix did not air the Cuties incident because if they did, like, you would be ruined. Mm. Everybody would see you for who you truly are. She then says he made her so insecure about her body on the show that she stopped eating and she refers to the cutie incident as an example of that where she said she was going to eat two oranges she hadn't eaten anything all day except a banana and like a teaspoon of peanut butter and then when she goes to get two oranges he's like are you really going to eat that like are you sure you want to eat that we're going to dinner soon and she clearly felt very fat shamed by those comments and then she accused him of trying to control her appetite it was very damning i was watching it with my jaw on the ground but netflix being the agents of chaos that they are after that actually aired the cuties incident that mm. zeneb kept referring to and it was a really it's just innocuous it was really <laughs> underwhelming like you watch it and you're like oh like he does ask you if you're gonna eat that but it doesn't look like he's shaming you he's just like oh like we're going out to dinner in like 20 minutes like do you mm. do you want to have a well and- she says like oh, i haven't eaten anything all day and he's like He's like, why? Why, why haven't you I eaten you all a, day? a poke bowl. She's like, I had one yesterday. I didn't want a poke bowl. I'm like, okay. Yeah, it, it seems str- like strange. Like you watch it and you're like, okay, I can totally see why he had no idea that that behavior was seen the way Zeneb saw it. Because to anybody, it would look very normal. But also it appears that like she is very insecure. We know that from day one because we watch her be insecure on the show. And it seems like she's kind of taking every remotely relevant comment to her body as like a really personal attack. But it's so frustrating because I do believe her. I do believe that, like, Cole definitely said shit here and there about her body. Mm. I believe her. And I'm like, why did you hinge all of your claims on the cuties incident? Because we've seen it and it completely discredits you. But I feel like there is truth to what she's saying. She's just a mess and she's petty and she's spiteful and she's spiraling is what it sounds like to me. But I do believe that, like, there was something. And it's like, I hate it because... I've seen a lot of like real vitriolic anger directed at Zeneb from viewers that I feel is like exacerbated because of her race. Mm. I think that the way the narrative and a lot of like fan groups and forums and stuff is like Cole is this poor baby and Zeneb is this psychotic woman of color who's like angry and aggressive and she just attacks everyone and she's crazy. You know what? Maybe she is bipolar and there's like... I just think it's very classic discrediting a woman of color, but it's not helped by the fact that she discredited herself when she like referred to this incident that we can all see was not what she said it was. And it's messy because I want to believe her and a part of me does, but I'm like running out of excuses to defend her. So chaotic. It's really chaotic, but I just wanted to point out I'm sensing some racism here. Moving on to Bartice and Nancy. Oh, yes. Bartice was the real villain as well of this series, which nobody is talking about because Zeneb has become the real villain of the series. Because, of course, women of colour are worse than actually problematic men. I think I heard that Bartice in the reunion also got slammed, but that got edited out because they wanted to focus on the the Cole and Zeneb 
drama because that's I wonder like, how long they're actually sitting on that panel then because the episode's like an while. hour long. Probably a while. I don't know. But the reason we wanted to talk about Bartice and Nancy is about a very specific uh, contentious issue between the two. Oh, which was like the best part of the show for me. I loved it. It was, yeah, pretty unhinged. So, okay. So, Nancy and Bartice, you know, also a couple with an age gap where the guy is like 25 and the girl is like 30 to 32, mm. just, just an interesting parallel here. But Nancy, early on in their relationship, you know, she's trying to suss out like Bartice's views on things. This is after like they've proposed, they've gotten engaged, now they're living together and she's meeting his family and she brings up abortion. And Bartice from the get-go is like, nope, could not do that, not okay with abortion. He's pro-life mm-hmm. and he, you know, maintains the argument where he essentially implies that any women who get pregnant are being irresponsible. Like, that's their own fault. if they, Because he's like, you know, I've never got a girl pregnant. There are ways to not get pregnant. If you're getting pregnant, that's your own irresponsibility. You have to take responsibility for that. No. Right, which is kind of yikes. Yeah, it's yeah. very problematic. Obviously, like, I don't think we need to explain what the fuck is wrong with that because obviously we are pro-choice. But it then gets really fucking weird because Nancy initially, you're like rooting for her. You're like, yes, queen, go off. Abortion is anyone's individual choice. You know, she makes the classic arguments of like, oh, so what do you think about teenagers who get raped? Like, you think they should have the baby? And he's like, well, no, because that's not their fault that they got pregnant. They get, they get a pass, essentially, uh-huh. is what he says. He makes a few comments to like everybody getting one pass. Yeah, we'll, it's, co- we'll come it's, back to that. It's weird. But yeah, so, so far you're rooting for Nancy and yeah. then- And then she starts to defend her own position, not from an angle of feminism and the idea that everybody just deserves autonomy no matter what. She then says the reason that she feels so strongly about abortion is because she worked with children with disabilities and watching them and their families made her feel that she never wants to have a disabled child and that's why she wants to have the option to have abortion because she would abort a child if it was disabled. Mm. Which is like what? Yeah. Like somehow making Bartice's pro-life like m- more tolerable. <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh my god! Like you were doing fine, sweetie, and then you like had to come out with the eugenics, and now we we can't stand you anymore. Mm. Um, we never stand her anyway because she's a house flipping house hoarder landlord. But like, oh yeah, she's problematic in a lot of ways. Yeah. But my jaw was on the ground because she says that with like complete earnestness. Mm. Like she does not see a problem with saying on national television that she would never want to have a disabled child. And if she were to find out, if she, if she like got pregnant because she wanted a baby and then found out that her child was disabled in some form, she would want to abort that child. Mm. We're horrified. Bartice is horrified. Also for the wrong reasons, because he doesn't seem to understand the eugenics of it all. Yeah. But then he makes the argument where he's like, uh, if I have decided that I want to have a child... Yeah then I will have that yeah, child. Yeah, that's my kid. And that's my I, kid. I, I love, love them. Kid. I'm not going gonna... to- I'm capable of you know taking care yeah, of them. Yeah, he's like, I'm an adult. I'm capable. Like, if I found out that my child had a disability, that wouldn't stop me from loving my child. And you're like, actually, True. you're like, go off, Bartiz, even though you're a fuckwit and you're actually anti-abortion, but somehow you're making points. Like, it's so ridiculous, right? I think we were just laughing at the absurdity because well, everyone's a villain. I love Bartiz's argument because it's just so- incoherent like it's just i find it just kind of completely perplexing because this is idea that you know like abortion is bad if you have a kid you know that's your responsibility to take care of it you can't just you know quote kill a kid unquote if you want so that's his view but then if he does believe that then he also believes that oh well if you're young you get a pass 
So suddenly it's it's sometimes okay to kill a kid and sometimes <laughs> like it's just inconsistent. It's like so make up your mind. Yeah. Like are you like, anti-abortion or not? You can't think abortion is bad some of the time. You, you have to take a kind of a firm stance on it, I believe. But well, it's just inconsistent. And it goes to show that he doesn't actually have any deep political understandings of this. Because no. if he truly was pro-life in the sense that, you know, all unborn children are children, then he would have a problem with all abortion. It's but he like, only has a problem with abortion where women are being, quote unquote, promiscuous. So really, it's an issue of misogyny. Yeah, it's perfect because it's like two straw men's arguing with each other. <laughs> straw men? Anyway. Two straw men, yes. Yeah. But yeah, I just, I really wanted to point out that what Nancy said was fucking ableist and really horrific. Because I feel like a lot of, especially like white feminists, are like, Queen Nancy, go off. And like, not enough people are talking about how cooked it is to say that you think like disabled kids should be aborted. And that even if you really wanted a child, if they were disabled, you wouldn't want them anymore. Like, that's fucked up to say. And I also just think, okay, like, people can become disabled at any point in their life. It's one of the few identities that can happen to you at any time. Like, people become adults and then things happen, you know? Mm. So I was like, what? You have a kid and then 10 years later, something bad happens to them, you don't want them anymore? Like, are you the type of parent that would give your child up for adoption because they now have a disability or some kind of accommodation that you don't want to deal with? It was really fucked up. But yeah, just wanted to make that point. Anyway, Love is Blind season three was very wild. You should watch it if you like chaotic reality TV. Let's do our recommendations and then we can get into today's episode. My recommendation for this episode is a book called All About Love by Bell Hooks. It was a birthday gift from my roommate and I have been reading it and I really, really love it. I just think yeah, love makes the world go round and nothing in this world is worth anything without love, which sounds corny. And I think a lot of young people view love as corny, but Bell Hooks writes beautifully and it's really accessible. I don't really read a lot of academia. I really struggle, but Bell Hooks is accessible. The book's really beautiful. I'm maybe a hundred pages in and I'm really enjoying it. So that's my recommendation. Yeah. Bell Hooks is fantastic. We've mentioned her a couple of times on the podcast. Rest in peace. My recommendation is a book that I mentioned, I think, a few weeks ago, but I finally finished because I started it and then I've read a few books in the meantime and then finally finished it. But that is Judith Butler's Gender Trouble, which, oh man, I love it so much. Even if I don't completely agree with some of the conclusions, the book is so well argued. And it's also a book that I think is worth reading, even if it is dense, maybe a bit difficult to get through. Because it's a book that I feel, I mean, it's so foundational for the way we discuss gender now and the way we talk about gender, talk about feminism. And it's also a book that a lot of people kind of posture on, including myself for a very long time, despite not having read it. Uh, and the arguments that Butler makes are maybe a bit more complicated than the most typical rendition you hear. Because essentially, the reason I read it is because Butler talks about this idea of gender performativity, which makes sense to me, and I wanted to learn more about it, which is most simply, gender is not something you are, it's something that you do. Gender is a series of gestures, of acts, of uh, traditions, uh, language, etc., etc. And while that is what the book is about, and what I feel like the book is most known for, Butler only gets to the idea of gender performativity in like the last 20 or 30 pages of this over 200 page book. So, there is really so much more to it and there's all of this kind of setting up which really makes the argument crystal clear by the end. So if you're interested and willing to kind of really work with a book, I'd recommend. Today is our monthly news roundup episode. So instead of doing like a deep dive into one topic, we're going to talk about a couple of news stories from the last two weeks that we thought 
were interesting and then to kind of discuss them in the lens of like our own politics and callbacks to some other episodes as well. So the two stories we're going to talk about today are firstly Queensland Police Service and all the BTST around its racism scandals. Queensland Police Service has had like many of them just in the last couple of weeks. I feel like they've made a lot of headlines in a very small amount of time for some pretty vile racism allegations. And there's also an inquiry into Queensland Police's handling of domestic violence like in its work culture as well. So there's a lot going on there that I want to break down and discuss. And then after that, Mitch is going to discuss recycling. Yes, and a recent scandal, which has kind of complicated the whole industry and I think individuals' relationship to their recycling habits. All right, let's get into it. Queensland Police has been making headlines for all the wrong reasons these past two weeks. The main one being that a whistleblower from Queensland Police Service, a serving police officer, leaked recordings to Guardian Australia of his fellow officers making vile and racist comments and jokes after he had made multiple internal complaints, which he said didn't go anywhere. I'm not going to include all of the things that were said in these multiple recordings. I will link the Guardian's report of them, but they're really fucking gross. Like I was just reading the article beforehand and I was horrified. Every single type of racism you can think of Mm. appears. I will give you, though, a TLDR of some of the racism that was mentioned. Just like a warning here, like some of this content will be distressing to some listeners because it's pretty fucked up. Here's a quote that one Watch House officer said about black people, I believe specifically Sudanese people. They wait outside fucking supermarkets and they'll follow you and they'll fucking try and rub you. And I'm thinking, just get them and beat the fuck out of them and bury them. Just bury them. Mate, no one would know. That's one thing that one officer literally says about killing and burying black people and nobody will know and they can get away with it. There's other comments in the recordings where they say that Muslims are outbreeding white people. There's jokes about wanting Ebola to make a comeback and wipe out Africans. There's comments about how Australia will be, quote, fucking taken over, unquote, by non-white people. There's one really horrific comment where one of the watch house officers goes to check on a black inmate who is having a shower and then he returns to the other police officers and makes a joke about that man looking like a gorilla in the mist. They also make jokes about wanting to get a blowjob from an Indigenous woman that was detained and under their watch. There's audio of one officer telling a funny story to his co-workers about driving and a Nigerian man drove in front of him and then he called him the J-slur while his kid was in the backseat. And then he's telling this funny story about his kid being like, Daddy... What's a J word, which he just thinks is so funny that like his kid is learning all these racial slurs at a young age because he says them in front of his kid. They also have a conversation about Black Lives Matter and Extinction Rebellion protests where the cops clearly fucking hate them. They talk about wanting to skull drag protesters and like throw them into cars. They talk about wanting to assault protesters. There's an entire segment of conversation on Captain Cook and what a smart and revolutionary man he was and how angered these officers are by modern, you know, people, scholars, young people, like disparaging Captain Cook and shitting on his legacy. They have this conversation about Captain Cook and what Captain Cook wrote about Aboriginal people and Maori people. And then they like pit the two populations against each other and talk about which one is more civilized. There are recordings 
of like just yeah colonial speak it's it's bad it is so bad that it just is- kept going and going and like a never-ending list and it just that's this is literally like a small snippet yeah. of there's multiple recordings and these are all recorded by officer Stephen marshall who was present during these conversations and was really horrified by what he was hearing and that's why he started to collect recordings because he was going to make a complaint because he said that like these recordings were just the tip of the iceberg mm-hmm. of the atrocious things that he heard in the four years that he had spent as an officer, which is not that long. Like it's long, but not that long. So Stephen Marshall took those recordings and he made several internal complaints which he said weren't taken seriously. And then he said that he was actually told off for continuously speaking up about it. And like he was told off by other police officers. He was ostracized. He said the reprisals he faced constantly uh, for not letting this shit go, like made him suicidal. And then going public with these leaked recordings was like his last resort. It was like he felt like he had no other choice because nobody was listening to him. And I think just a month before he leaked the recordings to The Guardian, he actually sent them to police minister Mark Ryan. So he sent the recordings to Mark Ryan, who has heard them, and police minister Mark Ryan refused to meet with him, refused to do anything about it. And at that point, this officer was like, I just felt like I was between a rock and a hard place. Like There was nothing I could do. He was like, I felt like I only had two options left. It was either litigation or it was going public, and I decided to go public. Yeah, so that's obviously fucked. It's not necessarily surprising because we know, obviously, that all police institutions, but specifically Queensland and Western Australia, I think as well too, that we hear the most like news about being racist. But all of this has come out in the midst of an inquiry into Queensland police's responses to domestic and family violence, which is expected to rip into police commissioner Katarina Carroll, who is like the next main character in our story, because this is a story. So first we've got Stephen Marshall, who's the police officer that leaked these fucked recordings, which again, you can listen to at your own risk. I will link them below. Then we've got police commissioner Katarina Carroll, who is now taking the heat because everybody is like, what the actual fuck? Like all of this is happening under your leadership. She's been the police commissioner in Queensland since 2019, so three years ago. So the inquiry that is looking into the Queensland police's response to these issues previously heard like multiple allegations from female officers who alleged that they had been sexually assaulted, harassed, threatened, and bullied by their male colleagues. Katerina is facing heat about her leadership because of some pretty cool stuff that has happened under her, all of that inclusive. But also, just like a couple of months ago, The Guardian reported that an officer who was accused of calling a fellow colleague a towelhead and Osama was promoted, like, under Mm. this woman's leadership. Imagine straight up saying slurs about somebody's, like, Muslim heritage and then getting promoted. Who is surprised that that happens? Police, not us. But obviously the inquiry is looking into all of this. The inquiry also heard that another officer called his female boss a cunt after she didn't give him some management job that he wanted. And then, like, in front of everybody else in staff, like, this is not a one-on-one conversation, he calls her a cunt, and then he says she's a cunt who is going to punch in the cunt, which is, like... It's like they're so fucked because so stupid. As I feel well. like we need to slow down or something because this is just rapid fire. Sorry. Like the worst <laughs> shit I've heard in my life. 
And I just like I just need a, a, a breather. Or I something. think I'm just getting it out there because I know I, it's I've, just like, like a I've just, I just need to get past it. Jesus like, Christ! Yeah, it's really really fucked. I was covering it at pedestrian after Guardian. Who was, oh my God, Guardian Australia is doing the Lord's work. If you work at the Guardian and you're listening to this podcast, I hope you know that I love you. <laughs> like, I kind of went on a rabbit hole and just like have read so many of their articles about policing, which I feel like they're kind of one of the few publications in Australia that like actually on the regular interrogates policing in this country. And they're often the first to like report on or break stories about police violence and like race politics in police industries so props to the guardian i am very sorry for everybody who just had to listen to me list all of those fucking hate crimes and racial slurs Mm. but yeah no it was it's just like yeah it's really bad and it continues to be really bad like these are all allegations that span over like just a year or two think about how many more there are that we don't know about Mm. this is just comments that a few officers have made that this officer was working with and he's just one officer and one of hundreds. There's hundreds of officers and just in Queensland. And then think about Australia-wide. I think about all the First Nations deaths in custody that are happening. And you just kind of think about the bigger picture and it's like, holy fuck. Like, obviously, especially you and I, like, we know, you know, ACAB, like, all cops are bastards. Yeah, like, yeah. police should be abolished because this is literally what they are designed to do. But it's, like, still really shocking and jarring to read or listen to all of this despite knowing that. Like, it's honestly triggering. It's really disheartening. I know. I remember before I was suggesting, before we recorded, uh, not that I had heard all of this, but like, should we include the actual audio clips? And I was like, honey, no. No, like that's the last thing I would have wanted to hear. Yeah, I was like, you don't know what I'm about to tell you. We are not including those recordings. I actually just hope, like, honestly, don't listen to them. Just read the transcript of The Guardian. Don't even listen to them. Entirely. But I am going to continue with this Queensland Police BTST recap (laughs) because there's actually more to it. So I'm just kind of condensing all of this history from like the last couple of weeks and then we can kind of get into why we're talking about it. Although it's obviously probably a bit clear by now. But yeah, so Police Commissioner Katarina Carroll is defending herself amongst all this drama. She, I should point out, like is a white woman and the first woman to be Police Commissioner as well. So there's a bit of girl bossery happening in the background. But yes, so in response to the leaked audios and also to the inquiry, but mostly the leaked audios. Katerina is trying to save face. And she then pointed to Kerry Johnson, another man who you now need to know the name of in this story, Superintendent Kerry Johnson, who is the man that she handpicked to lead the First Nations and Multicultural Unit of Queensland Police Service. And this unit, its job is to, like, you know, build rapport and, like, community with First Nations people and other, you know, like, ethnic groups. And it's essentially, like, I guess its job is to make sure the rest of Queensland Police doesn't look as racist as it currently does. This is, like, the faction whose job it is to actually talk to people of colour. So Kerry Johnson is the head of that. And per Guardian Australia, Katerina Carroll told reporters that she chose Johnson herself to run the unit because he would, quote, understand the history and the issues, unquote, related to First Nations people more than other people. And then Guardian Australia reported that she also used Johnson as proof of Queensland Police Services having First Nations officers in its upper ranks which is actually just not true. No officers in the upper ranks of Queensland Police Service identify as First Nations. Which brings us to the point that she's essentially saying Kerry Johnson is Aboriginal, but Kerry Johnson does not identify 
as Aboriginal, which is like kind of bizarre and, and weird. So The Guardian reported, and I think it's a pretty crucial note to include, that Kerry Johnson does not identify as a First Nations person. However, he does have some Aboriginal heritage. He does have an ancestor that is Aboriginal. According to Guide in Australia, Johnson, like, says he is white and for all intents and purposes, he is white. They also mention that he doesn't meet the government standard criteria to identify as First Nations, but I'm less interested in that because I don't think a government involved in, like, genociding and repressing Aboriginal identities has any say in who can... Yeah, bureaucratically, he doesn't uh, count. Yeah, but, like, we don't care about that because we don't give a fuck about the government's position on Aboriginal identity. But I'm just noting that The Guardian said that. Yeah. I don't care, though. What I do care about is that he doesn't identify personally. Like, he himself has said that he doesn't identify with being Aboriginal. I think that's what's important. And also that the community doesn't claim him either. I think those are the two things that are Mm, important to me. That's important, yeah. It's like, he doesn't say he's Aboriginal. Nobody else says he's Aboriginal. That's pretty important. But despite that, not only does he lead the First Nations unit, but he is apparently being actively used as proof that it has multicultural leadership. And then on top of all that, because that in and of itself is like kind of probo, but not that probo. But then Guy in Australia reported that Kerry Johnson actually himself has been accused of racism by a black police officer who worked under him in the First Nations unit, which he heads. So she claimed that he allegedly blocked her promotion on racial grounds because he said that he didn't want to deal with the quote-unquote optics of then having to replace her with a white man. So she says that he wouldn't let her leave her role for a better role because then if she left and a white man replaced her, it would look bad on him and on the unit as a whole, which is really pushing this image that it's diverse. The document seen by Guide in Australia also apparently contained allegations that he was disrespectful to community members at uh, a funeral held in the Indigenous community and that he also apparently laughed at a joke by other white officers about him not being, quote-unquote, black enough to lead the unit. So there seems to be some self-awareness or, like, jokes in the, like, actual unit that, like, this guy is kind of being paraded around as Aboriginal representation, but he doesn't see himself as Aboriginal or black. It's like no one believes it, not even the department itself. Yeah, it's, just it's, purely, it's purely just a parade. It's just a show. Okay, so that's kind of, that's the recap. That's everything that I wanted to talk about in terms of just facts that have been reported in the media. Just honestly, I think in the last week, I don't even think it's two weeks. I think this all happened in the last week. But there's a reason that I've given this recap of these really fucked stories. The first one is the identity politics surrounding Kerry Johnson, which I just think like we talk a lot about identity politics on this show and we frequently talk about them from the lens of like them being co-opted in like liberal left spaces. But I find this really interesting because this is a direct example of people who uphold white supremacy and colonial institutions now using identity politics to make themselves seem more legitimate, specifically Obviously, Police Commissioner Katarina Carroll, who has said, according to Guide in Australia, I will say, I couldn't verify like where she had said this. So we are banking on like Guide in Australia's reporting here, and I want to make that clear. Like I haven't seen where she has said this. But the Guardian said that she said Kerry Johnson like is proof of First Nations representation in the unit, which he apparently isn't. His like identity or lack of identity or whatever you want to call it, I think, is like just this really fucking messy game of identity politics, which tokenizes a heritage Johnson doesn't even claim 
in order to feign some kind of like racial sensitivity or cultural sensitivity that he has it's like oh we can't be racist as an entire force because look at this leadership and unit we have which was created to build rapport and relationships with first nations communities and because this man is not white and if anything is first nations and he heads this unit you can't accuse us as an institution of racism like that seems to be the underlying message i think and it's fucking concerning because like we live in a time with liberal politics so people really believe that kind of stuff like people will really be like oh true this can't be racist then which we know is not true. And it's just fucking cooked to me that like everybody is saying this guy is an Aboriginal, including himself, and he's still being placed in this role and being used as that representation and being tokenized in that way. One Queensland Police Services officer told The Guardian Australia, quote, they're using a white man who admits he doesn't identify as Aboriginal to tick a black box, unquote. So like you said, Mitch, it appears that everybody who works there doesn't see him as Aboriginal. And everybody kind of knows it's a fucking game. Like everybody knows the politics of what's going on here. But we as outsiders wouldn't really know that unless we had these whistleblowers and like these reports by The Guardian, like actually challenging the legitimacy of these claims. And then she's like kind of moving on because I feel like Katarina Carroll is really like at the center of this in a way as the police commissioner who is maintaining that, you know, the recordings that we heard earlier are just like isolated incidents that don't reflect the force. She did say like they don't reflect the force's values, which I mean, I will get back to in a second. But then she also like spoke significantly in the media about how she is the right person to reform police. She is going to reform the policing, you know, she just hasn't been given a chance yet. She's only been there three years. She actually said, I'm a CEO managing 17,000 people. And I'm like, you're not a CEO. <laughs> like, I think her calling herself a CEO is probably just exactly what I'm trying to fucking convey. Right. That she, A, does not understand her position. This is not a private fucking company. It's police. Like, you're a government organization whose job is allegedly to serve and protect. We know it's not. But to be like, I'm a CEO who's just been handed this difficult job and, you know, I need time to reform it. You've been there for three years and you can't reform it. Mm -hmm. And I know, of course, there will be those that will claim that holding Carol to account for this rampant bigotry and violence in the state's police force like it's happening under her is, you know, actually sexist because as the first woman police commissioner for Queensland Police Services, she's held to a higher standard than her male counterparts. We've heard it before. We will hear it again. We're like, oh, yeah, I've seen it a lot in white feminist spaces where like, you know, a woman CEO, like a woman will be promoted to a role where she heads a problematic company and then that company falls apart. And then everyone's like, see, like what they do is when they know it's falling apart, they give it to a woman, which is true in a lot of cases. But in this case, it's like any woman who wants to head the racist police force is part of the problem. She's not going to reform it. Like, it's not going to happen. I also just like to say that, like, heading a deeply racist and misogynistic organization, which, you know, began as a force to oppress Aboriginal people specifically in the first place, like, this is a colonial institution, it has a colonial legacy. Like, heading that with a white woman is not the feminist move y'all think it is yeah. <laughs> it's just not feminist it's got nothing to do with feminism we don't give a fuck about her being a woman because she's still part of the ruling class and she's still upholding a white supremacist institution in response to the vile audio like i said earlier carol has maintained that you know they don't reflect the police force it's just some bad apples like you know we'll weed them out but like we've heard this all before yeah we've heard this all before it's like oh but you know we've got plenty of diverse officers we have a multicultural unit like we care about cultural sensitivity this is just a one-off and like 
as you saw from the fucked list of things I read, it's clearly not a one-off. It's a cultural issue that is happening to many people in many units by many officers. And it, like you know it's bad when like white men officers are like quitting or like leaving or going to the public because they are so horrified by what they're seeing. You just it's obviously bad. Mm-hmm. But I also just think like the whole idea that it doesn't reflect the values of the Queensland Police Service is not true because the Queensland Police Service has a colonial legacy. Its values are built upon like the genocide of Aboriginal people. It has a direct hand in upholding white Australia, upholding the white supremacist state. What do you think that the police service was doing in colonial days? They were rounding up Aboriginal slaves. It was their job to protect this, you know, white property from like the traditional owners of the land who they saw as fucking fauna for a while. Like, this is what they did. This is how this institution began. Even in New South Wales, like, New South Wales police began as an institution that, like, fucking rounded up Aboriginal people. That's what they did. Police exist to serve the state. And then if you think about what the state did to Aboriginal people and you think about what police's role was in maintaining the state's interests, like, you know, we put two and two together and we realised that the police as an institution is built on violence, it's built on misogyny, it's built on racism, it's built on imperialism. You can't reform that shit. Like, you just have to burn it to the ground. Mm -hmm. You just have to actually, like, abolish it. You just have to abolish it because it's deeply embedded in the institution. This is why we're ACAB, right? ACAB, all cops are bastards. Because as we have seen with Stephen Marshall, when there are good officers, they're either kicked out of the force or they're silenced, gaslit, driven to mental illness. They are left with no options because to actually exist in a police force, you have to be complicit. And the moment you stop being complicit, you kind of stop being part of the police force. So all cops are bastards. I mean, we've got a whole ACAB episode if anybody wants to listen to it. You can go back to the early days. We've got one. This has been our stance forever. But this whole Queensland police thing is your reminder, ACAB. Yeah, no, exactly. I don't really have much to add because I feel like you expressed that all very, very well. I just want to reinforce that last point again. That we're ACAB because it's oxymoronic to have like a good cop, in my opinion, because you're right. The police force is an extremely effective self-regulating system because if you do want to challenge those ideals, if you do want to be a quote-unquote good cop, because I'm certain there are, quote, good people that want to become police and they don't remain police for long. So that's just the way it works. It's a very effective filtering out process. Yeah. Um, In order to remain a police officer, you have to either actively engage in these vile behaviors or you have to be complicit in them Mm -hmm. and being complicit in the oppression of others does not make you a good person so another thing i wanted to talk about was earlier this month i think the 8th of november is when the story broke it was revealed that red cycle the company that operates those like return to store soft plastic recycling bins uh, at Coles and Woolworths announced that they will no longer be accepting plastics to be recycled after it was revealed that they have hundreds of millions of bags and other soft plastics stockpiled in warehouses not yet being recycled and none will be accepted to be recycled, at least for the foreseeable future. I was pretty shocked when I heard that. Yeah, I was pretty shocked too. And they did cite COVID's impact on the economy as a reason why they could no longer offload their resources. But I think it's an interesting way to talk about the fact that recycling is a business. It functions like a business and thus is impacted the same way other businesses are. And also kind of reinforces some of the things that we've been saying in previous episodes that 
recycling is as much as we want it to be not like an individual issue or just climate change isn't an individual issue. And no matter how agential we are, no matter how eco-conscious we are, if a company isn't able to, not even doesn't want to, but just isn't able to, it doesn't matter how much the individual wants to recycle because they're caught up in this larger system. I just kind of wanted to interrogate this a little bit further because I think it's very reflective of a lot of things. So Red Cycle claimed that they had a 350% increase in plastics being deposited into these like return to store bins uh, since 2019, but due to COVID's impact on the market, it was no longer possible to offload all of these recycled plastics. And while, yes, it is great to see such a significant increase in people going out of their way to recycle and be eco-conscious, it also suggests that the recycling industry has like serious bottlenecks by their very nature. And that even if everyone actually wanted to recycle everything, it literally would not be possible. Yeah, like I was going to say, just listening to you say that, like we're always telling people, make sure you recycle, upcycle, be sustainable. Like it's been a real push. We've really guilted people into worrying about their carbon footprint. And as somebody who like also, like I care about recycling. Yeah. Like I get it, I get it. But I just find it so fucked in like, it's, it's kind of funny in just like a really sardonic way that like everybody was like, oh, okay, like, yeah, we'll totally do that. Let's start taking our soft plastics to mm-hmm. recycle. They're like, oh, no, we didn't mean all of you. Yes. Like, they say these things and they tell everybody to recycle, but then when you actually try and do it, they're like, oh, no, we actually can't. We don't have capacity for this. Like, stop. Exactly, right. Which is like, why are you telling everyone to do it then? How do you not have capacity for this? Precisely. And just this story, I mean, I've just been thinking about it for like the past couple of weeks because you don't really think about where the recycled goods are going, but it made me realize how integrated recycling is with like capitalist production. You know, where does the recycling go? Well, it goes into future commodities, which means that if business isn't booming, then production is lowered, which means there's less intake, which means that they can't use the amount of goods being recycled. And then it's just as functional as trash, essentially. Yeah, I was going to say, really, what's the difference between your recycled goods being in a warehouse or in a landfill? Right, and now they're they're saying- They're still taking up space and not being used. Exactly. And now they're saying either hold on to your plastics until a solution has been found, until- production can restart again or just throw the soft plastics into the trash like most people are already doing yeah i saw a lot of backlash on the smh article from people being like this is you know like fear-mongering like they're saying it's a temporary issue and i'm like okay but like temporary till when like you are right like we are right to be fucking concerned because a they didn't tell us that this started they've only told us now that they have nowhere to fucking put this stuff anymore and B, there's actually no solution being offered. So, like, we are within our rights to be, like, quite shocked and scandalized by this information. Yeah. I think people are really defensive of recycling, which I understand. We all, like, have grown up being told to recycle. We're all really climate conscious and we're all fucking worried about our waste. But, like, let's not get caught up in our personal attachment to recycling and actually be critical of, like, the situation at hand because it's still a business. Ex- well, exactly. It is a business because recycling is not straightforward it's not this completely like magic solution recycling especially soft plastics are especially complicated because i mean there was a recent abc article which i'll I'll link below which kind of details why this is so complicated why this is falling apart and it's because soft plastics isn't this single monolithic category but soft plastics are actually like hundreds of different types of plastics which need to be organized which costs money because people aren't organizing and really have no way to organize these plastics themselves before they dispose of them. And also, if that was the case, they just wouldn't. So that costs money. 
of course. So if the recycling isn't profitable, as in companies don't want to take the recycled goods for future commodities, which will then, you know, like the circular economy of recycled resources, then the whole thing kind of breaks down. Yeah, like you can put your stuff in the recycling bin as much as you want, but if nobody is picking it up or no other company wants to use those goods or whatever, like it's just pointless. And we've seen like stuff like this before, I feel as well. There was scandals like a couple of years ago. People were like, oh, like, Australia's recycling is not getting recycled anymore. Like, yep. what's happening? Like, we don't do our recycling nationally. We were exporting it. it was, I feel like there's been so much drama with recycling and not enough people talk about it because we're all really defensive about recycling. Of course, because we don't want to encourage people not to recycle. Recycling yeah. is always better than not recycling. I mean, that's just kind of self-apparent. But what this got me thinking about is... Perhaps the way the system is currently organized, where like recycling is almost seen as something that will be able to sustain the world as we currently know it, a practice we can do to keep things the way they are. While as heralded as that, perhaps that's somewhat of a fiction. And in fact, if everyone wanted to recycle, if everyone was as kind of thoughtful with the way they dispose their goods, the system literally could not handle it. Because that's the way it's kind of looking to me. The reason I say that is because it seems, especially with this scandal, that recycling literally needs to remain a niche market in order to function. It seems that for recycling to work, you need to have a prosperous, booming economy in which people are consuming a lot and businesses are producing a lot. So there's a high circulation of goods. But then that kind of booming, prosperous economy is the kind of economy which isn't going to be environmentally sustainable. Exactly. So there's kind of a contradiction. There's an underlying irony there. Yeah, I find it interesting that business needs to be booming for recycle to function because business booming is probably a sign that we're not being mm. sustainable if we're constantly buying. Like if, we're, like if we need to be consuming a lot for recycling to work, then it's not working. Yeah. Because if it needs us to consume more and then put more waste out, like that seems counterproductive to me. Exactly. And like what people were saying, oh, don't worry, this is just a, a temporary closure. Well, the way capitalism works of booms and recessions every few years, you know, a cycle every decade or so, there's always going to be quote unquote temporary closures. Like there's always going to be times where it's just not sustainable because capitalism isn't sustainable. And that's reflected in the unsustainability of these recycling practices. And I'm not trying to be pessimistic. Uh, In fact, I'm very optimistic and I'll get to that soon. But it brings us back to the question of like individual versus system. Yes. Right. Individual action versus systemic action. And I'm not blaming Red Cycle, the company. It seems that they literally were just at the woes of a market that won't accept their goods. Yeah, like that's the thing. I mean, there's obviously these companies are in a fucked situation, but they're in a fucked situation because we exist under capitalism and Mm. capitalism just doesn't allow for these kinds of initiatives to thrive. If sustainable initiatives or initiatives where we constantly recycled goods instead of making new goods thrive, it wouldn't be capitalism because it relies on commodification and consumption. Recycling isn't necessarily capitalistic, but within the current system, a recycled good now is a future commodity. Mm-hmm. So it is completely intertwined. Yeah, like if we could divorce recycling from capitalism, maybe it would feel more radical. Yeah, and... Again, and this is obvious, of course, it shows that agency does not lie within the individual. And there's even if you do everything you can, even if you recycle all your goods, you return your soft plastics to the return to store bin, which you can't now. And anyways, most people weren't doing it anyways. Even if you do everything you feasibly can to have a minimal impact on the environment, it's still not up to you whether a shit gets recycled or not. Exactly. And I feel like this, I mean, really the core of this issue for us 
it's like we've talked about before with sustainability and like the climate movement, a lot of our issues with it is that it consistently places blame on the individual for waste. Yes. And everyone says, oh, if people just do their part, if everyone does their part, then we can kind of tackle this issue together. Well, even if everyone did their part, firstly, I don't think the system could handle it. Yeah, and secondly, even if everyone does their part, it's still not up to everyone whether or not these businesses either decide to or even can recycle these goods. Yeah, because this is an example of everybody collectively deciding to do their part. Mm. And what did it do? It balked the system, like it killed it. So we are very critical of individualistic responses to climate change. I mean, we believe that an individual can't stop climate change. It is corporations that are mostly responsible for the gases and the actual physical waste that has caused climate change. And it will be them having to change or us abolishing them that will stop climate change. Like it does not matter if I turn off all my lights every day, if I don't use electricity, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't matter because mm-hmm. the fucking office buildings you see in the city have their lights on all day. Like think about the electricity crypto users, think about the electricity that like large corporations use. Like it's just, there is nothing I could do personally that would stop that. And this recycling thing is such a good example of that because everybody is literally recycling and that's what fucked it. Exactly. And I don't want to say things are futile, but I also don't want to see solutions which kind of seem magical because recycling is almost a magical idea, right? Oh, you can have a thing. And when you're done with that, we can make it into a new thing. Yeah. No guilt with your consumption because we can just recycle it. Right. But I don't want high tech solutions to things. And I think this is like a kind of a shift in my perspective. I don't want high tech solutions to things. I want low tech solutions to things. I don't want to innovate our way out of a crisis through ever more complicated technology, but I almost want less complicated technology and a change in our relationship to the things we consume, other people, the environment, to just the economic structure. It's not that I want nothing to change. Instead, I want people to do everything. But that includes not just a change in consumption, but ideally a change in literally everything. A yeah, change, a literal systemic, systemic change, change a literal revolution. Change. There you go. It always comes back to that, doesn't it? Yeah, I think the idea of low-tech solutions is really interesting because that just reminds me, I remember in university, I did a course on uh, climate change in media. And one of the articles I read, which was really interesting, was about this initiative these scientists were doing where they were making essentially like ginormous ice cubes and dropping them into like Arctic waters to make up for the glaciers melting. So they're trying to slow down the heating of the ocean by literally popping ice cubes in it, which is like cool. But it's an example of like a really high tech solution when like the real solution would be we just stop burning fossil fuels. That's something we could just do. We have renewable energy. We have the resources to stop burning fossil fuels. And I'm not criticizing those scientists. They're doing what they have to do. Because we as a society cannot accept the low-tech solution. So they're like, fine, we have to come up with really innovative and interesting and like mind-bending ways to keep the ocean from burning up because we just can't take this actually simple solution that's right in front of us and run with it. And I feel like, yeah, you saying that just reminded me of that study that I learned about because that's exactly what it is. We keep coming up with more and more like complicated, techie, innovative ways to get out of climate change when we can just stop fossil fuels and limit the creation of plastic. Exactly. There you go. Cool. Well, thanks for listening. I think now is a good time to talk about our sponsors for the episode, which is you guys, our lovely, lovely listeners. And specifically, we'd like to thank the ever lovely Johnny and Pia, as always. So thank you so much for supporting. If you thought our discussion today was interesting or thought provoking or something you learned from, 
please consider donating to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Saliha. And if signing up isn't your thing, you can also donate to our PayPal link at paypal.me forward slash Saliha to support future episodes. Both the PayPal and Patreon links are below in the source list and also in my Instagram bio. So check them out over there at Saliha Official. And give me a follow if you like today's episode. And follow my Instagram at mrs.miscellanea for discussions around film, books, and music. Also, if you have any comments or suggestions or you want to add to the discussion, you can DM me or email us at here's a thing though podcast at gmail.com and please include your name, pronouns, and any other important info. Cool. Thanks. Bye. Bye. <laughs>